welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rocha, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest edition of Arbitral Insights, our podcast series with influential, interesting, and inspiring people in the world of international arbitration. And I'm delighted today to welcome a dear friend and former partner of mine at Reed Smith, Lindsay East. Hello, Lindsay. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Lindsay. As is customer, Lindsay, I'm going to say a few words to introduce you as our guest. Right. And you will need no introduction in the world of shipping and transportation, because quite frankly, and I make no bones about this, you are a legend in that industry. But you are an absolutely seasoned campaigner, and you joined our firm literally 51 years and a week ago on the 3rd of March, 1971. And you became a partner in the firm in May 1977, and you were the youngest partner in our firm's history. You are and have been for so many years at the very top of your profession in the shipping and transportation sector. You've seen a lot, and we're going to touch upon some of this in the course of our discussions today. You've got immense experience of international arbitration, not least because it's one of the preferred systems of a dispute resolution in the shipping and transportation world. And I'm very much looking forward to having this discussion with you. Apart from your incredible achievements in law, you've also got significant management experience. You sat on the firm's executive committee for four years in the 1980s, and you were the head of our shipping group, as it was then called, for eight years. And uh, apart from that also, you're also very international. And I, and again, we'll touch on this, no doubt, Lindsay, in, in the course of our discussion. But you've literally worked and travelled to many, many countries around the world. So we're all set then, Lindsay. And this is also a first for me because it's the first time on this podcast series that I'm getting to interview one of my former partners or indeed one of my current partners. So I look forward to this immensely. Let me ask you this. How did you get into the law? What made you want to be a lawyer in the first place? Well, that's a relatively easy um, answer because I was, uh, I had a somewhat difficult upbringing, shall we say. We didn't have a great deal of money. I went to 10 different schools, which is not ideal. But for my sixth form, I ended up in a grammar school in Tunbridge Wells called Skinner's. And I looked around and I decided I needed to get a job. In other words, when I went to university, I needed to do a course that resulted in my being employable. And I had an uncle who was a company secretary. He said, well, why don't you be a lawyer? So I thought that sounds a good idea. So off I went. Uh, My headmaster one morning said, anyone wants to apply for Oxford or Cambridge, come and see me. So I thought, well, why not? You know, I can only fail. So I went along and uh, He said, well, do you want to go to Oxford or Cambridge? And I said, Oxford. And he said, why? And I said, well, because my grandmother supported them in the boat race. So he said, well, that seems as good a reason as any. You all put down these different colleges and you should apply to Worcester College, which I'd never heard because it's good at law. And he was right. 
And somewhat to my surprise, I got in and started studying law. So that's how I got there. And then you joined Richard's Butler, as we were then called, on the 3rd of March, 1971. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how you found Richard's Butler and what the recruitment process was like for you at that time. That is something that has changed beyond recognition. While I was there, Oxford was very old-fashioned and had only just started some new courses. One of the new courses was shipping law, actually called international trade at that point. And as you know, you have a you have a, a couple of teachers in your own college, and one of them, Professor Francis Reynolds, was one of the people who taught shipping law, and he was in my college, and I rather liked it. So I thought, well, I'll apply to all the law firms that do shipping law and pay more than nine hundred pounds a year. Now you, this is nineteen seventy, and you could live on that. Surprisingly, there was no social media, of course. All you got was a, a sheet of paper from the appointments committee, or whatever they called themselves just setting out the different firms. And so you applied and you either went down to London or in the case of Richard's Butler, they came out to Oxford, a chap called Richard Fletcher, who interviewed at Trinity. And if you got through that, you went and had a second interview back in Richard's Butler's office, which I did. And they were the first firm to say yes. So I just joined Richard's Butler purely because they were the first firm to say yes. And as luck would have it, uh, I like them and they like me. So that was quite satisfactory. Well, it certainly was, given the longevity that you had at the firm and the heights you reached at the firm. Now, one of the things I always thought about when I was a student, Lindsay, was that so much of the law of contract is basically shipping law. Shipping and insurance. Yeah. And so much of our textbooks when we were students was all based around international trade, shipping uh, and maritime law generally, especially lots of those cases on economic loss. So in terms of that, did you always find shipping law very you know, stimulating as a matter of intellect? Yes, I would say. I mean, it was interesting because it was, it was new when I was at Oxford. It was, it, I thought it was interesting. It was almost romantic, you know, involved people all over the world and all that sort of thing. So when I came to Richard's Bachelor, I wanted to make sure I did a seat in shipping. But my first seat was in media. And my last seat was in shipping, and it was a toss-up between the two because they're quite similar, I thought. We had a very big media group then, 20% of the firm was media, and the personalities that I met, you know, Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, Stanley Kubrick, people like that, Murray Pariah, the pianist, they were rather similar to the ship owners you meet in the shipping side of things. They're all larger than life, egotistical, and rather fun, and I rather thought that was fun. I Convincing never interested me, I'm afraid, nor corporate law. And so it's either shipping or media. And I thought, well, I came here to do shipping, so I'll do shipping. I worked for a man called Elmsley, long since unfortunately passed away. He and I got on very well. Shipping law was on the up. I mean, it was going like a train. So I was in the right place at the right time. So I assume I had a certain amount of talent as well, but uh, it was easy in a way. And that's why I got to become a partner so young because basically the market was really booming and expanding. Well, talking about that, about three or so years after you became a partner at the firm, you were instrumental in the launch of our Hong Kong office. Yes. Which remains one of our key offices to this day. So tell us a little bit about how that all came to be, because didn't you also work in Hong Kong for a while, Lindsay? No, it's an interesting story. I always had an interest in Hong Kong purely because I always liked traveling. And we 
wanted to have an office in Hong Kong because it was an obvious place to have an office. We had an office in Abu Dhabi, which didn't do shipping. I think that was the only foreign office at that point. Anyway, what was originally suggested was I, I would go out there and have a little look around with a, an ex-colleague from Richards Butler who worked for Baker and McKenzie in Hong Kong. And he suggested that a joint venture might be a good idea with a local Western firm. Because in those days, you know, Hong Kong was dominated by Western firms, basically. And uh, the firm, uh, which was called Wilkinson and Grist, did a bit of shipping law and had a man called Andrew Biggs who did it, but didn't have enough people to do it. And they thought a joint venture would be a good idea. We thought it would be a good idea as well. So basically, we set up a joint venture and sent out one of our very junior, almost, very, I mean, just become a partner, I think, a man called Johnny Johnson, to work with Wilkinson and Grist as a joint venture. We replaced him with a man called Chris Howes, who was phenomenally successful. He built up the firm very quickly, realizing it's no good being a shipping firm per se. He brought in uh, Robin Nicholson from Johnson, Stokes & Master, David Norman from Simmons & Simmons doing capital markets work, Adam Morgan doing ship finance work. And basically, the firm started going very, very well. Incredible story. Not due to me, due to Mr. Howells. I mean, my role was administrative only, apart from playing cricket there a couple of times. <laughs> well, that's also one of our shared passions. We'll turn to that later, Lindsay, for sure. So, Lindsay, one of the things that we are focusing on in this podcast series is the whole area of international arbitration. And that's a, a form of dispute resolution that you yourself have got immense experience of, given how much it's used in the world of shipping and international trade. I wonder if you could share your thoughts about how you've seen the evolution of international arbitration since you first began practicing in 1971, because there will have been so many changes and experiences you've come across in that time? There have indeed. Of course, one mustn't forget that when I started in 19, I qualified in 1973, there was virtually no IT, if you, and there were no computers even. I don't think there were even electric typewriters. I think they came in shortly afterwards and everyone was very excited. So everything was so slow by comparison to what happens nowadays. And that applies to absolutely everything, including running an arbitration. So it was just a completely different business in those days. Everything was, uh, you waited for things to arrive, you had letters, and it just, it's difficult to describe how slow it was. And of course, the arbitration, we were lucky in the sense uh, of shipping, because most shipping contracts, charter parties, which I deal with a lot, nearly always have arbitration clauses. Uh, some of the more up-to-date uh, oil tanker charters had high court options, but basically it was all arbitration. So you, you entered into a sort of almost unreal world of, of arbitration with nothing really happening at all quickly. It was really rather odd. You had telex, which I don't suppose you'll even remember. I do. <laughs> you remember. I taught myself to, look, to read the telex tape because I thought it would be something interesting to do. And it, 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 can I tell a joke? Yes, of course you can, Lindsay. Please. On April the 1st, in, in, I was a partner, so I'm not sure what year it was. One of my colleagues, David Pullen, who you remember, came to see me and said, could I fake a, a telex purporting to come from a law firm in Alexandria going to one of uh, our colleagues, Hugh Edwards, who was a property partner? Yeah. And he wanted to play a joke. So I said, yes, I can do that. So I did it. He provided a, an excellent message. It looked like in 
was in broken English coming from a, a real law firm in Alexandria. And the purport of the message was that Hugh Edwards was to be asked to go to uh, Cairo because he did work for Middle Eastern clients uh, and meet the Shah of Iran, which he was uh, so he was fell for this. He was completely taken in and rushed off to our then senior partner, a man called Bobby Reed, who you won't remember, and said, "Look, I've been instructed to go and deal with the Shah of Iran." Of course, Bobby Reed looked at him and said, "It's an April Fool." <laughs> uh, you, you That's a good one. <laughs> you, you, you couldn't do that nowadays, but everything was very slow. And arbitrations always took place traditionally in the Baltic Exchange before it was blown up by the the IRA, and it, they were very sort of gentlemanly affairs. I mean, nothing happened fast, as I said. You, typing was difficult, so you didn't have huge numbers of bundles, which has become a real issue and something we may touch on. Uh, disclosure in those days was was moderate, shall we say. And most of the arbitrators, there was a famous man called Cedric Barclay, who, although he was called Cedric Barclay, actually came from Uzbekistan and spoke 12 languages. And you would have a morning and you'd have your hearing in the Baltic and then you'd all have lunch. Lunch was organized by the arbitrators and you would sit there and the arbitrators would deliberately split you all up so you could find yourself sitting next to the other side's council, for example. And you would have a, a proper lunch, including alcohol. Uh, this was something which nowadays would be regarded as completely impossible. Well, it certainly would. Goodness, it's, it sounds like a bit of a club, Lindsay. It did. Sometimes you'd have evening hearings. I remember one with, with Cedric Barclay, and you got to his uh, flat in Sloan Square, and, you know, the first thing he did was open the drinks cabinet. It was completely different. The claims were the same, the cases were the same, the law was the same, but the, the way in which it was conducted was, was just so different from today. It, it's unrecognisable almost. Yeah, absolutely. That's very amusing. The thought of sort of talking about real issues, about real cases over drinks and that sort of thing is uh, quite something. And of course, the the other thing we might also touch on this as well was that Mm. in those days, every case could go to court. Every arbitration award could be appealed. If you ask the arbitrators to state the award in the form of special case, as it was called, then you automatically got a right of appeal to the commercial court, which meant near enough automatically, as you know, you could also get to the Court of Appeal. And this was absolutely clogging up the commercial court. And there was one particular charterer called the Government of India who appealed every single case on demarriage, which was, you know, liquidated damages for delay. And they had literally hundreds of cases going to the commercial court. None of them necessarily had any merit. It's just they had a they appealed everything as a matter of principle. And that eventually led to the changes in the arbitration procedure in the various arbitration acts culminating with the one in nineteen ninety six. Yeah, which is interesting. And I'll come to the ninety six Act and your thoughts about how the last 25 odd years or so has gone because I'd be really interested in your thoughts on that. But one thing that what you just said reminded me of, Lindsay, was when I was a first year contract law student many years ago, some of the terms that our lecturer mentioned were ones that you would certainly be very familiar with. Demurrage, yeah. the law of general average, yes, and things about hulls and 
This again goes back to how much the law of contract and indeed law of tort has been so influenced by the shipping world. But, you know, let's just fast forward a bit then. So you mentioned about how the commercial courts were getting clogged up because of so many arbitration awards getting appealed and the court system basically being like a second tier tribunal for the arbitration world. Now that all changed when we had the 1996 Arbitration Act. Well, it actually changed. It changed in the 79 Act and and 76 as well. 75 Act as well. It did. It did. Absolutely. But sort of the real big sort of regime change, so to speak, came in 96. And and I wonder whether, I mean, what are your perspectives as to how arbitration changed for you in your practice from 96 onwards? Well, I have a somewhat controversial view about this because I am on record as having given lectures uh, to the effect that we need more appeals, not fewer appeals. And this is not, the purpose of the 96 Act was to codify the previous uh, two acts and make appeals more difficult, as you, as you know. And appeals are now, you know, if you want to appeal, you have to, it's all done in writing. And I think, I'm not sure the percentage, but a very small percentage of cases get through. This is fine, so long as the arbitration awards themselves are correct. And one of the difficulties is that ship owners, with whom I mainly dealt, are very happy to have no appeal from an arbitration award as long as they win. And I had a, I still have a, a view that uh, some of the awards are not perhaps as uh, as good as they might be. This is a controversial view, and therefore it's quite a good idea to have a commercial court which is full of, on the whole, pretty experienced commercial judges who can, as it were, put things right. But this goes against the general, as you know from your your practice, you know the ancestral rules and that sort of thing, which of course are very keen on having no appeals at all. And we are told that London was losing out to other areas of arbitration because we still allowed appeals. And so there was this controversial discussion in 1996 with Lord Savile and his committee as to what you should do about that. Now, Lord Savile believes there should be no appeals at all. His view is, why should the client pay for the development of English law, for example? Lord Thomas, who was Lord Chief Justice, as you know, an ex-shipping lawyer, He's very much on the other side. He said there should be more appeals because otherwise you you won't develop English law, which, as you rightly just said, relies a lot on shipping for its contract and tort development. But the Savile view was, well, sod that, if I may put it that way. Uh, Why should the client pay for that? Mm. Now, the, the only reason the 96 Act came into force or was drafted was because the government told Savile and his committee they only had a very limited amount of time to produce an act, and if they didn't do it, then there would be no act. Savile told me that the, the committee was de- deadlocked between those who wanted more appeals and those who wanted fewer appeals or no appeals, but the imposition of a time limit produced this compromise, which is the 96 Act. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and that point about Lord Thomas, I remember when Lord Thomas gave that famous lecture. That would have been about, it would have been maybe about four or so years ago, four or five years ago. Yeah, something like that, yeah. And he gave that talk and the number of people who, who came down like a ton of bricks on him because he gave the talk, as you know, Lindsay, when he was ranking wise, the most senior judge in the country. Yes. As Lord Chief Justice. And 
many people, arbitrators, institutions, practitioners were all saying that. But but actually, one thing I'd be interested in, in your thoughts on is this. I mean, one of the big criticisms which arbitration law gets, and sometimes correctly in my view, is that it doesn't develop jurisprudence because very often the awards are not as well set out or well reasoned as a high court judge's judgment would be. I mean, is that something you relate to, Lindsay? In in some cases, yes. In some cases, you read an award and you can't understand how they arrived at the result. I mean, I do agree with that. When I've been an arbitrator myself, I've always tried, of course, to make sure that the award is properly reasoned. Shipping arbitrators on the whole are quite good at it. And I've read a couple of cases which are much more in your area, building disputes and things like that, where some of the awards are frankly incomprehensible. I take your point on that. I think on the whole, shipping arbitrators, of which of course include a large number of lawyers these days, are on, are fairly well reasoned. But I mean, you're right. I mean, unless it's well reasoned, of course, it won't make a great deal of sense. And the other thing, speaking as an arbitrator myself, is of course you alter the facts to fit the result you want. Yeah, and that's a nice topic. That's a that's a perfect segue, Lindsay, because the next thing I wanted to turn to was your new role, if I could say that, because since you've retired from Reed Smith, which is much to our detriment, you are now an arbitrator. As you mentioned, you've sat as an arbitrator, you will be sitting much more now as an arbitrator. And that will be a wonderful thing for the world of arbitration, given your experience. But tell us a little bit about, it might sound like an obvious question, but how you think being an arbitrator differs from just being a practitioner. I mean, obviously, you've got to decide things. But do you anticipate or have you found that the way you interact with cases, the way you interact with counsel addressing you has changed in ways that maybe you hadn't perceived? Not really. Of course, it's different. I, I agree. You're not acting for the obvious thing. You're not acting for either of the parties. So you can take an independent view. And I, I was just thinking I was the chairman of a tribunal of quite a complicated dispute involving 10 contracts of freightment between two Actually, they were both Chinese parties, I suppose. And of course, it was interesting just being able to sit back and, and, and look at the whole dispute from outside, so to speak. And it was also quite fun having eminent QCs call you sir, which was quite nice. Oh, we all call you sir. No, well, uh, we still oh, call you sir, Lindsay. So, uh-huh. Yes, of course, it's different. And when I talk about altering facts, what I mean is the facts are found by the tribunal in, in a way in which they want to find them. And as you know, if if a case does get to appeal, on the whole, it's very rare for the facts as found to be altered by the court. It has happened occasionally, but it very rarely happens. So you start off, you're talking about jurisprudence, you start off with an award if it goes to court, which already has the facts found, and therefore the the law's got to be looked at with the facts that have been found in the award, which may be not entirely satisfactory, but that's the way it is. Yeah. And, you know, Lindsay, do you, from your perspective, both as a very experienced practitioner and now as an arbitrator, are there a few things that you sense could be done to improve the arbitration process so it's a much better vehicle for dispute resolution going forward? (laughs) How long have you got? (laughs) It's entirely up to you, Lindsay. Well, I think the, uh, the main thing that I find from clients is cost and delay. 
arbitrations are very expensive. And there's virtually no way of not making them expensive. If you have a tribunal of three, which you normally do, arbitrators charging, I mean, the London Maritime Arbitrators Association, which is the one I mainly come into contact with, maybe they charge between 350 and £400 an hour. You have a very large number of retired judges nowadays and QCs who, who sit as arbitrators charging a great deal more than that. So if you have a one-week hearing, you might find that the costs are at well over £100,000. And of course, that's a lot of money, let alone paying the lawyer's costs on top. You also get the delay because we're still stuck in uh, an area where we have fairly lengthy disclosure, I would say. The rules for the LMAA, for example, do allow the arbitrators to try and cut down on disclosure, but they hardly ever do. And so, in my view at least, you get too many documents. The cases last too long, and they can be too expensive. And that is a problem. And you get areas like Singapore, which is snapping at our heels, so to speak, which you know about. And they are, you know... Trumpeting, yes, much quicker, you know, much cheaper, et cetera, et cetera, and no appeals. So I think we need to address that. And there's not much appetite to address it at the moment, as far as I can see. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Because when I remember when I first began doing arbitrations, it was always trumpeted as being quicker and, you know, much more efficient than litigation. But, you know, inevitably, in some cases, it's more expensive for the reasons that you mentioned. And and that awards take longer to come out as compared to a high court judge or a court of appeal giving a judgment. Anyway, I mean, these are issues which you're quite right, and they're ones that certainly need to be grappled with. I mean, one other thing that I I wanted to ask you in this sort of area about arbitration is, and this goes to your point about sort of costliness and timeliness, do you think there should be more summary type procedures in arbitration? I mean, you're very familiar with them in litigation, of course, where they can be used to short circuit cases. But do you think sometimes the concept of due process in arbitration means that tribunals aren't as strict on parties as they might otherwise be? Yes, you're right. In, in short, uh, you're right. Arbitration is supposed to be a commercial uh, business. The famous case, which Richard Butler involved in called Bremo Vulcan, South India shipping, I think. Case in the 70s went to the House of Lords about, I can't remember exactly the issues, but Lord Diplock, I think, gave one of the judgments and said arbitration is a, is a consensual business. And it's, it's not like litigation. And that arbitrators feel that, I think. And they're quite reluctant to be as aggressive, if, if you like, as a commercial judge. And one of the problems, if I can be somewhat bold, is because the arbitrator Two of the arbitrators, at least, are appointed by the parties. And whether you like it or not, that's going to have some influence on what they say. Whereas a high court judge is not appointed by either of the parties and can be completely independent. Absolutely. So, I mean, going back to Cedric Barclay, because I can talk about him as he, he's no longer with us, he always used to find a way of giving his client something, <laughs> shall we say. In fact, he acted for the government of India, as I talked about earlier. And, you know, they always got something out of it, you know, and that was part of the way arbitration worked in those days. And to some extent, it still does, because there is, I entirely agree with, a reluctance to be tough. Even though we changed the rules, the LMAA's got some quite tough rules now about things like summary judgments and such like, but they're not always enforced as they might be. No, Lindsay, thank you for that. And, you know, just before we sort of turn to some 
sort of more, I guess, lighthearted things. I wonder, one of the things I've always wanted to ask you, Lindsay, but I've never asked you in all the years that I practiced with you at Reed Smith and Richard Butler before that, but is there one case that sticks out in your career as being the highlight or or a case that was just so memorable because of who it involved, the place it, you know, that it happened? Is there one such case or a couple of cases that really stick out in your mind, Lindsay? Uh, there are hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> I remember going home and I was a very junior person to my wife and uh, saying, oh, by the way, I'm going to, I've got to go to Calcutta tomorrow. Wow. <laughs> and I, like, it was a ship on fire in, 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 in Calcutta. I flew out there, arrived at three in the morning, went to the hotel, found a message from the client in my pigeon hell saying, dear Lindsay, welcome to Calcutta. I expected Clyde and Co. Oh, really? <laughs> So that one I remember pretty well. Yeah, what do you do? What do you do then, then? Well, you don't do anything, much, really. You just, uh, just sort of take it on the chin, really. And I suppose the other one is the Antiles, which is a famous case. Went to the House of Lords on uh, on question of appeals and arbitration, but there was a substantive, very difficult arbitration with four parties. And almost anybody who was anybody was in that case. Gordon Pollock was for the ship owners who were Greek. Mark Saville was instructed by me for Swedish charterers. Bernard Eder was for the next charterers now. And Nick Phillips was the next was the next charter down so pretty good group and gordon pollock who was never how should i say that never felt constrained by anything started the arbitration by saying that my clients who were swedish called Salane, had no right to bring their claim for 10 million dollars because their solicitor mr east i me had agreed with their then solicitor mr maskell norton rose that uh, the ship needn't proceed to its destination until they provide until we provided a guarantee. This was an interesting argument. It was entirely untrue, apart from anything else. But of course, you can imagine it made me feel a little bit uneasy. Yeah, I can imagine. So I said to Saddle, Mr. Maskell, who I know quite well, he was a senior partner at Norton Rose, has been sacked, and I proposed to go and ask him whether he agrees with this or not. So I went to see Maskell, who I whom I knew. Maskell said, Ah. I knew that's why the new solicitor tried to get me to sign a statement. I'm sure I didn't sign it. And I said, well, obviously not. I said, then I've got my notes here. We have our telephone conversations indicate that I never said that. And he said, no, I agree with you. So he wrote out on the spot or had his secretary type up an affidavit saying that the remarks made by Gordon Pollock QC were incorrect, that no such conversation had taken place. And I took it back to the arbitration, feeling a good deal relieved. I'm sure. That case will live with me forever. And so and we won the arbitration even better. So there we are. Oh, yeah, well, that's all worked out well. Wow. Well, you know, I know we could talk so long about your career because it, it is such a rich and full career that you've had so far. But a time is a pulling at me. Um, so I need to... Go to just one more amusing thing. When I first went to Tokyo, the clients who were Thomas Miller, one of our biggest insurance company clients, said... Uh, Hmm, I think, yes, I think you can go to Tokyo. You look old enough. <laughs> anyway, sorry, carry on. No, no, no. That's I find that amusing because that's always one of the things because there's that sort of great respect, isn't there, for age because it you know it gives gravitas, you know, to, yes. it's in certain parts of the world. And I know certain parts of Asia certainly have that sense, that feeling. I know we can talk for hours and, Lindsay, we've talked a lot over the many years I've known you, but 
I mean, as we round off this podcast, I just wanted to sort of touch on a few more lighthearted things. Yeah, now, I mentioned a bit earlier on in this podcast that you and I have a shared passion for cricket, amongst Indeed. other things. Indeed. You know, so now that you are retired from practice, but obviously not retired fully, you're still working as an arbitrator. What are your favourite sort of things to do in your spare time apart from watching cricket when the weather's conducive to it and when England aren't doing too badly you know when they're playing overseas are there things that you enjoy doing now Lindsay? Well it was travel of course was the big thing because I I used to travel a lot in in my work and of course the trouble is you know my wife used to come with me but since she passed away it's been a little more difficult and then we've had Covid so the answer is I play golf and I took up golf when I was no longer able to play cricket. Because another of another highlight of my career, of course, which you haven't mentioned, is being captain of the Richards Butler cricket team. Absolutely, for, yes. for quite some time. That was always very enjoyable, and that was in the days when you did frequently play cricket with clients. Again, these days that doesn't really happen. Well, it happens a bit, but not in the same way that it used to. So, yes, cricket. I'm, I'm going to Lords. I've got time. I've got tickets to South Africa for India, New Zealand. So. That that will be interesting, but I think getting back to travelling is going to be the thing. We have my wife was Jewish, and we we have a lot of diaspora relatives around the world, and getting back to travelling and and going to see them again, I think, is one of the things I'm looking forward to. Yeah, I know absolutely, and travel's a wonderful thing. I mean, is there any place? And as as I mentioned a bit earlier on in our podcast, you've travelled extensively. But is there one place you've not been to yet that you'd love to get to? Well, India, funnily enough, which I'm sure you'll be pleased to hear. Going to Calcutta to investigate a casualty for four days does not count as going to India. My wife didn't want to go to India because she was convinced she would get ill. And I would very much like to go because I think it's a wonderful place. And I very much hope that I will be able to go there. Well, I hope so too, because it truly is. Yeah, it's a it's a wondrous place to go to. So varied, but you need to have some time in hand. So it'd be oh, good know, to I have know. a block of time. And I'll make sure that I give you an itinerary, Lindsay, that you can work to. And so let me ask you this as a last sort of question in this lighthearted section. What sort of music do you enjoy? Classical. I mean, a jazz to some extent. I'm not, I'm not good at modern music. So... When I was at Oxford, I was vice captain of the college cricket team. My captain said, I'm taking you to a prom. And I said, I don't like music. He said, you'll like this one. And it was the USSR State Symphony Orchestra conducted by Svetlanov, Rachmaninoff, Shostakovich and Tchaikovsky. And I said, oh, you're mm. right. You're right. So since then, I've been very keen on classical music, opera. And I, I try and go as frequently as I can. Lindsay, thank you. It's been an absolute delight to do this podcast with you. You're someone who we all look up to and respect immensely, Lindsay, and not just at Reed Smith, but in the market generally. On a personal level, you've always been very good to me, Lindsay. I mean, I'll always be in your debt for the kindness you've shown me over the years. And I've really enjoyed doing this podcast. So thank you very much for taking the time out. It's a pleasure. And thank you for your kind words, not some of which may be justified, but certainly all of them are not. <laughs> I assure you they are. I appreciate it, nevertheless. <laughs> I look forward to seeing you in person very, very soon. Okay. It's been too long. Well, thank you very much. It's been very enjoyable this event as well. Great stuff. Thank you. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. 
to learn about the ReadSmith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on ReadSmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, ReadSmith.com, and our social media accounts at ReadSmithLLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.